This episode is not suitable for children and may be triggering for some as it contains discussions around PTSD, graphic and violent stories of tactical siege situations. The wonderful Keith Banks is back with us today to discuss his second book, Gun to the Head, which is a retelling of his high-risk operations as part of the tactical response group within the Queensland Police Force in the 80s, and his move from that to criminal intelligence. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes with Keith where he's discussing his life as an undercover drug squad officer, you're more than welcome to go back and listen to those if you want to first, but this is also a standalone, so you can listen to them afterwards. This discussion and book talks about the toll that those roles took on his personal life and his journey through suffering of PTSD. For those of you that haven't listened to Keith's previous episode, he is the only police officer to receive the prestigious Queensland Police Valour Award medal twice in his career. They're incredible stories. This book is well worth a read, but please tune in to hear a little bit of what the book has entailed. Enjoy. Episode 41, Keith Banks. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Well, congratulations on your second book, Gun to the Head. Thank you. What was the... um, well, first of all, it's due to be released on the 20th of July, 2021. So congratulations. I happened to get my hands on a uh, advanced copy and uh, loved it. So thank you uh, very much for writing the second book. What was the catalyst towards writing that after um, the first? Because uh, you had such success with the first one. Yeah, I did. Yeah, unexpectedly, actually. Fiona, I, I'm, I'm still pinching myself about how popular the first one's been. Um, mm. And and when I started writing, last time we spoke, I, I – um, I said, you know, I was going through a stage where I wanted to write my stories or, or some part of my experiences down to give to my daughters mm. because of the, um, you know, the issues I'd had when they were growing up with with my undiagnosed PTSD, I suppose. And um, and once I, you know, the first manuscript, um, it all came together really. And then um, <laughs> then the catalyst for writing number two was lockdown. So, ah. you know, we couldn't do any damn thing last year, as you remember. And um, so I uh, I was working from home. I'd finished my work. And then I looked at the parts of the manuscript that I hadn't published in the first one and thought, mm-hmm. okay, let's just rock and roll on this again. Um, and not being a writer as such, uh, there was no planning to it. There was no, you know, I'm going to plan this chapter, start, middle, end, etc. I just sat down and wrote um and I had access to, in some parts of it, I had access to um, statements or briefs of evidence that that I kept copies of from back mm. in the day. I was um, actually going to ask you how you came up with being so detailed in your dates and everything. Ah, you see, there you yeah. go. We are great minds again. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's what it was. I, you know, I went. I literally, literally went under the house and rummaged through some uh, cardboard boxes and found things that I, I knew I'd kept for a reason all those years ago. Yeah. Um, and I and I just put them on the desk beside me, and and as I was writing, I'd refer to those for any detail I needed. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of what I've written about, you know, had such an impact on my life that it's never really gone away. It's just some of the detail that I needed. Mm. But this time around, also, I, you know, I'm I'm very conscious that um, I didn't want it to be all about me. I wanted mm. to be. I've always wanted to write the books about my colleagues, the impact on them. Um, and so on. And so I actually reached out to a, a couple of people and spoke to them about their experiences. Um, uh, one, for, one, the result of, you know, corruption and, and it pretty much ruined his career and I wanted to tell his story. Mm. And the other two, um, the other two male and female officers who uh, I, I hadn't heard about their story until I was actually writing. And um, and we have a, a closed Facebook group for veteran police in Queensland and current police in Queensland where we just um, – it's a safe place to talk about things. And uh, and Wendy had put on a, uh, a post about what had happened to her and her partner um, years ago where they were held at gunpoint and, uh, and she thought she was going to die. And I'd never heard their story and I thought, wow, this is, this is something that's got to be told. So spoke to them, um, re- you know, 
did the interview, acted like a real author, <laughs> um, did the interview, you know, recorded it, uh, then drafted it up and sent it back to them and they were happy with it. And, um, and so that formed a part of my book as well. And that, that just then gave me a little bit of uh, incentive, I suppose, to, to contact a, a couple of other people. So, um, yeah, it was this time around, I think only nine months in the making versus five years for the first one. Well, I think you're probably in the swing of things and plus lockdown and not being able to go anywhere probably speeds up speeds up some things. Yeah. The accounts and events and opinions are in the book are very frank in terms of your opinion of the Queensland police in the 80s. So we're not talking yep. currently. This is in the 80s. Yep. Um, although it was 40 years ago, I mean, you name names in this book. Are, were you concerned about any reprisal in regards to uh, your opinions and the allegations that you were putting forward? Um, good, great question. Um, so the manuscript before it was published went to an external lawyer. So Alan yeah. and when the publisher sent it off to a lawyer and uh, and I had back and forth with the lawyers and conversation about that. So, and and I realised through the whole writing process that interestingly the laws of defamation in Australia are that you cannot defame the dead. So essentially when I go, you can say anything you want. Um, but <laughs> but I've, uh, I've kept, so there are people in the book that I've, I've named who are deceased, but what I've written about was common knowledge. Um, and, and it was also backed up by uh, court transcripts. And, you know, for instance, the police commissioner, Terry Lewis, was sentenced to, I think, I think 14 years jail for corruption. Um, so, you know, there's the, the defence to defamation is the truth. So what I've written about him is the truth. Um, and I've written about some other police there who uh, have deceased and absolutely the truth as well. One is Tony Murphy, the notorious Tony Murphy. Um, but there are other detectives in there, particularly two who offered me a pretty substantial bribe. Um, mm. And I was advised to change names even more. I'd, I'd called them by... Well, don't um, don't fi- say what you called them. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'd called them by fictitious names, but then okay. the lawyer suggested that, you know, I even change them a little more to make it even, you know, a little more unique so there was no opportunity for anyone to identify them. Um, that's not to say that people don't know who they are. But so, so, so in essence, to answer your question in a very roundabout way, um, it's been to the lawyers. The lawyers have signed it off, so I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable. Hmm. Do you think that um, – I think a lawyer's signing it off and then the opinions of other people within the force that it served are two different things. Have you had any yeah. feedback in quoting <laughs> – <laughs> quotation marks from other serving members in terms of uh, the honesty that you've had in the books? Um, the first one? Mm. Yeah, I have. I've mm. had a lot of feedback and it's overwhelmingly been positive. Um, I expected some pushback when I wrote particularly about the corrupt environment in the 80s. Mm. And, in fact, one of the uh, one of the former police commissioners, uh, Bob Atkinson, um, I've spoken with Bob recently because um, I've, invited him to do something for my launch. Bob uh, paid me an incredibly high compliment. He said, I read your book and I loved it. And I said, uh, said, wow, I was pretty open and honest about it, Bob. And he said, needed to be said, Keith, and you've captured it perfectly. So the I think the vast majority of police, um, as I've said in that and this book, that I've uh, had the, the honour of working with were honest and straight people. And they've actually really um, happily acknowledge the fact that I've written about it so openly. So I expect the same will happen with this one. Mm. I'm just going to read an excerpt out of the book. I mean, this is page mm. two, so you're starting <laughs> off pretty pretty early. Sure. I ran undercover operations, making sure I looked after the welfare of undercover operatives as best as I could, something that was not a priority when I was undercover. I'm certain Harry had been supplied with heroin by police because it suited them to have an undercover who could be put in situations where heroin use was necessary. Other undercovers who were clearly burnt out were moved from job to job without regard of their welfare. On one of my first undercover buys, I'd been forced to use speed at gunpoint, and when I reported the next day, I was not asked if I was okay. The only thing that the detective handling the job was interested in was that the target had a gun. Undercovers were treated like collateral damage, and I wanted to do as much as I could to change that. Yep. 
So that's right off the bat, it's a pretty damning um, account of how yep. undercovers were, were treated. Yep. Yeah, I haven't yeah. missed them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, there, are, there was, I'm just trying to think, was the Carter Inquiry in Brisbane into the use of undercover operatives that occurred, I'd resigned from the police force, and I think it was maybe the late 90s, and that was equally as damning. Um, you know, so it's it's not just my opinion. It's certainly my observation, um, yeah. and of course my opinion. But it's been mm. backed by by findings uh, of certain inquiries. And in fact, the um, the whole way that covert police operatives are used now was a direct result of the lessons learned by the way in which they treated us and treated us inappropriately, completely inappropriately. And I, um, yeah, Harry. My opinion, absolutely supplied with heroin by certain corrupt detectives. Um, and I will be careful what I say. Mm. I don't know that directly. I never saw it happen, but mm. I'm very confident that it did. Um, he wasn't out there working undercover, buying his own heroin to inject it. He was certainly, he was obtaining it from somewhere. You move from undercover to CIB where you're doing, and you might need to just briefly explain what CIB what is. Mm, yeah, Criminal Investigation Branch. Um, in Victoria, it's now called Criminal Investigation Unit or something, I think. And, and what happens in policing is that, you know, names change over the years depending on who the boss is to make them probably more, I don't know, divorced from the bad old days perhaps. Because of the corruption inquiry we had, the um, the Royal Commission in Sydney into police corruption, the issues that have surfaced in Victoria, um, it's simply a name change. So it's essentially detectives doing what they've always done, which is investigate crime. And but serious crime, because you were doing um, serious burglar, burglary assaults, uh, mm. some homicides were in there as well yep. back in the back in the eighties. Yeah. Um, you talk about moving from that and the difference in terms of being able to, to trust people. And there was a particular um, pub that you used to go to quite regularly when you were as an undercover operative or mm. police officer. And then you talk about how you were looking forward to going in as a copper and just having a beer. Were you ever concerned about being identified, though, as being a previous undercover cop? Um, I probably I fell right into the trap that a lot of cops do, which is I thought I was ten foot tall and bulletproof. Um, and were you not key? <laughs> not ten foot tall, <laughs> and sadly not bulletproof. But um, yeah, it was just for me. It was an attitude, and and you know I I followed the ethos that the police should be running the underworld, not the other way around. Um, not running the underworld, that's a bad choice because some of them were. Um, but that the police needed <laughs> Allegedly. to be a, yeah, <laughs> the police needed to be a force. And uh, and I wasn't going to back down from walking into a pub that I knew was full of drug dealers um, as a detective. And it's it's really it, it's a bit of a psychological game when you're in that world. You know, it's you need to actually show that that you're not afraid to be involved in those situations. And and the other part of my personality was I was really looking forward to just having a beer in a place that wasn't a bad pub um, that, <laughs> that I'd frequented in another world or another identity. Um, and, and as you may recall from, you know, the, when I wrote in the first one, Fiona, every undercover operation in those days, our identity was disclosed anyway after it was over. You know, we, we were actually the, all the drug dealers that I bought drugs from were told that they had sold to an undercover agent Constable Keith Banks, so they knew my name. Um, they knew that they knew who I was. So that's why we were moved all around the state from, you know, pretty quickly after each operation um, to go somewhere where we weren't known. And and the other thing about walking into a pub like that in those days was you were encouraged as a detective to cultivate informers. And the old saying was you don't catch crooks in a in a milk bar or a bingo hall. <laughs> um, so I actually, going back in there as an, um, as an overt, obvious detective, and I'll again be careful what I say, but it yielded some benefits because I actually developed some relationships with people that provided me with um, some pretty good information on criminal activity. You talk about the, um, I mean, one of the things, one of the 
paragraphs that you write about is being emotionally detached, otherwise you'd quickly collapse as a copper. Mm. And it's also a fine line be- be- between that and then losing your human- humanity. Um, on one of the previous episodes you talked about a time when you were undercover and you saw a go- uh, well, you found out it was a 14-year-old kid mm. uh, shoot up and um, – and you couldn't do anything about it. You thought that he was 18 at the time, but you couldn't intervene because you would have blown your cover. And then he later on subsequently went on to to form a serious habit and pass away. Mm. Yeah. And then you went into that same pub that you were looking forward to drinking in and, and had an OD in the bathrooms that sort of took yeah. you back to that time. Yeah, it did. How conscious was that needing to divorce that emotion or was it just something that was learned over time? Um, probably a combination of both, I think. Okay. Um, if you see enough dead bodies and, and, you know, particularly overdoses and later in my career pretty vicious homicides, um, you you never get used to it but you learn to cope with it. And my coping mechanism was I'd, uh, I'd just look at that, that dead body and, and just tell myself it wasn't a person anymore, it's just a body. Um, because if you... And, and again, if you get too detached, you don't have the passion to give the victim justice either. So, so coping with dead bodies has always freaked me out, to be brutally honest. And mm. you, know, you see on the movies, cops stand around eating a hot dog over a dead body. Well, I've never seen that. Um, you know, but it, for me, it was okay. Just and I'd, I'd have my mental little mantra, which is not a person anymore. It's just it's just a piece of meat. It's just a body, and that helped me cope with the physical. Um, I guess the powerful physical image, as you know, you, and, and I'm, it's something I never want people to see. But if you, if you you know you walk up to a body that's been brutalized, or um, or even in this case, you know, an OD, where you, if you allowed yourself to dwell too much on the person and their hopes and dreams and what their life may have been, you'll end up an emotional wreck. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the way I coped with it. So it was it was a combination of both. It was my my way, but I'd also, I'd seen enough by then, you know, just to probably automatically slip into that mindset. The first part of the book is pretty action-packed. I mean, you sound like you were, were really one of the founding members of the, is it a counterterrorism uh, task ta- or something? Yeah, tactical response group. Um, yeah. Which had been previously, well, I, I was one of the initial members of the revised um Emergency squad, as it was then known, and the emergency squad. It was it was similar in New South Wales. They um they were generally formed, I think, in the late sixties or so to deal with domestic sieges and you know armed defenders. Um, the armed defenders were relatively rare, but there were a lot of domestic sieges in across Australia because everyone had access to a firearm. You could walk in, you could literally walk into a Kmart or similar. Buy a high-powered rifle without showing any identification and happily stroll out again. Hmm. Um, so, For those listening know, overseas, that's not the case now. Australia has very strict gun laws, and you can't do that. Yeah, thanks for that. I've forgotten <laughs> we have overseas <laughs> listeners. Um, yeah, after our Port Arthur massacre, the terrible day in Port Arthur, um, the government hm. had the courage to ban um, high-powered weapons, uh, you know, semi-automatic rifles, and shotguns, and so on. Um, it broke my heart. I had to hear my shotgun back. <laughs> but, um, but every I, I grew up in in the country, and every household had a had a rifle. Every yeah. single house. Yeah. Um, so the emergency squad was essentially uh, Vietnam veterans, I guess, who were used to handling firearms, who probably had seen action, you know, more than the average policeman. Or when I say policemen, because police women were very rare. So it was. Um, yeah, it was a squad that came together. It had some equipment, and that evolved uh, then into when I joined the emergency squad, as it was then known. Um, we were tasked around the country with taking up counter-terrorist responsibility, and we in Queensland particularly were training for the Commonwealth Games. Um, that was in 1984, from memory. Um, so we'd uh, we'd actually had the Special Air Service counter-terrorist operators fly over and start training us, and it was it was a real evolution. Um, and plus, we were given lots of equipment from the federal government as part of that whole counter-terrorist approach, which was very new in those days. It's evolved substantially now, hmm. but it was um, 
look, it was a boy's own adventure, to be honest. It was, you know, I wanted to do something that was really cool and exciting and sharp end. And, it sounds like you know, great fun when you were just, oh, when you yeah. were, although there yeah. was a photo in there of shooting targets when you were practicing at the SAS thing. And I must say, Keith, those targets look about five meters away. I hope you, ta- I hope you practice with them further away. no no um now actually you don't because urban warfare or um domestic sieges or not domestic sieges high-risk raids all happen within buildings close yeah you bet and the and the um the average uh gun battle is is easily less than three meters yeah well that makes sense then mm, it was all it, it was actually called close quarter combat cqb okay so the killing house in the in the special air service regiment or the barracks in uh, Swanbourne. Mm. <clears throat> the killing house consisted, I won't go into too much detail, but it's also been massively evolved now, but a number of small rooms mm. with uh, hostage and uh, terrorist targets in darkness with explosions, stun grenades, tear gas, and um, and you went in and, and literally identified quickly hostage versus terrorist, engage the terrorist, which is a polite term for shoot them in the head, and then uh, then move on. So all of that, yeah, it was it was specifically designed for close quarter. We had um, we also had snipers who were, you know, trained in um, in much longer distances, of course. But with our cross training, we learnt to use uh, to use rifles, so Armalite rifles that were probably Vietnam vintage, I guess, and then Steyr rifles as we evolved and so on. So, but it's essentially, you know, as a young bloke, um, young bloke, sir. We'd go to training and go, wow, we're getting paid to do this. We're shooting stuff. We're running through buildings. We're abseiling out of helicopters. Speech the heck out of riding traffic tickets. Well, it's <laughs> interesting that you were mentioning how rare women were on the force because one mm. of the um, stories that you tell was where a couple of police officers get uh, held up essentially. Well, mm. I, don't know, I don't know how you would explain it. But um, one of them was a female officer and you – you make a point saying that they were issued with uh, waste. I don't know what you call them, waste Util- band Utility things. belts, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. They had handbags that they were yeah. expected to carry everything in. And I just, oh, different time. Yeah, I know. My my daughters are 25 and 23, I think, and um, and, and they just. <laughs> yeah. Probably I've told them the story and, and they've, they've gone off. <laughs> yeah, probably skirts and pantyhose as well. And Well, they were, yeah. yeah and, and, yeah. Um, and I've shown them some old photos. I should have put a couple of photos of police women's uniforms in there, but back when I joined, they were dresses um, and they were pretty short, you know. So the uniform dress was, oh, God, easily, easily six to eight inches above the knee. And you look at that and go, this was clearly designed by a male. <laughs> Well, it was the um, six. Well, I would say sixties. It wasn't. It was the eighties. So yeah, very a lot more conservative than I would say. Very much. Yeah. Just by um, male. <laughs> but you know, and and it was really, you know, I've written about this as well. I um, previously and and also here, it was about uh, appearance over functionality, mm. and you know, there was there used to be an attitude that some a lot of senior police had that you know if you carried a firearm, then that meant the criminals would carry one which is very interesting because the criminals carried them anyway. Um, so so there wasn't a great deal of support for a firearm um, training approach, etc. And police women were issued with a big handbag. They were expected to carry their handcuffs, their baton, their firearm, their notebook, and everything in this, this handbag. And keep and, the lipstick straight. And, yeah, yeah, ab- yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it was all yeah. about, you know, the hair has to be up and the makeup has to be a certain standard and all of that stuff. And um, and I've just had a flashback. Actually, I saw a policewoman belt a guy with her handbag, you know, pretty severe, all in brawl, <laughs> and knocked him out. So, she probably had a brick in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, she had all the stuff she had to carry in there, and it just went whack. Um, but uh, but yeah, I've written about that, and you know, utility belts—they're they're, you know the the gun belt, I suppose that you see mm. on on a lot of police now. The male officers were issued with them. The females weren't. But that evolved pretty quickly after some, I think, some pretty um, aggressive input from the police union um, and some <laughs> attitudes changed. But I always felt sorry for police when they were expected to do the same job as we were with, you know, with less functional equipment. Mm. Were any in the under – because you were talking about how uh, 
under supported you felt when you were in uh, the undercover drug squad. Yep. Were there women in that squad as well? Not at that time, no. That okay. that came um, a good friend of mine who now lives overseas. She was one of the first undercovers, and I'm, mm. I think she would have been in there probably in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, that started to change and evolve because the the police force realised that there were a number of undercover agents who were paid out, you know, with medical stress payouts and so on. And and I think it's the old story: follow the money. Money talks. It's not necessarily about looking after people's welfare, and and that does sound a bit cynical and jaded, but that's sort of what it was like. Um, so so the police force, you know, realised there had to be a training program, and they had to give more support um, to covert police officers and even so much as changing the name. There you go. There's a good example. <laughs> they were no longer undercover agents. They were covert police operatives. Um, and and the support became better um, and gradually improved. And, and I'm very comfortable, not that I know and I don't want to know or don't need to know, but I'm very comfortable that, that undercover operatives are looked after and supported um, much, much more now than they were then. You're pretty... The theme of of the book is very much an honest account of your feelings um, when you were serving, but it's also it takes you on a journey of your PTSD as well. Um, and I know that a lot of people hate the D on the end of it, and they don't consider it as a mm. disorder. Um, and I think I personally think that that's probably a correct thing. Um, are you comfortable talking about Operation Flashdance, which was sort of a really big factor in towards of your PTSD? Yeah, it's I am now. Um, I couldn't for a long time. Um, but it's it's part of my recovery as well to be able to to talk about that um, that day and and the consequences of it. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Would you like me to would you like to ask some La- questions? Yeah. No, no, just <laughs> launching launch into give a brief um, maybe give a brief overview of the operation and sure. And the outcome of it. Yeah. So the operation was uh, we were full-time tactical response operators. Um, we were tasked with uh, executing a high-risk search warrant or high, yeah, high-risk grade search warrant on a house in Brisbane, um, knowing full well that the house was occupied by one of uh, the most violent armed robbers we'd encountered. Paul James Mullen had, uh, was an escapee from Long Bay, I believe, in um, Long Bay Prison in New South Wales. He'd been on the run for probably six or seven years, and um, and he'd committed a number of violent armed robberies all across New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia, and so on. And and when I say violent armed robberies, I mean absolute violence. He he had um, some sort of psychopathic um, thrill, or he got some psychopathic thrill out of racing into a bank, firing shots in the in the air, leaping onto the bank counter pointing guns in people's faces, terrorising them, sometimes assaulting them um, and so on, stealing money and, and leaving. He had, um, he'd shot a security guard in the back in, uh, without provocation in one of his armed robberies and he'd also shot a security guard outside a cold supermarket or something from memory to, to steal the payroll. Um, neither of those guards were a threat to him. He just got a kick out of it. So we knew full well that he was, uh, he was likely to respond um, to any attempt to arrest him with violence, with firearms, he carried a um, um, a two two three semi-automatic Ruger rifle with him at all times. Um, he'd sawn the um, the stock, so the part that fits into your shoulder. He'd sawn that off and made it more concealable. Um, Thirty round magazine with a semi-automatic capacity, which meant every time you squeezed the trigger, it, it fired around, which made it quite a lethal weapon. He was also armed with a variety of handguns um, and so on. Um, so we we looked at the entire circumstance. We knew he was in the house. We had a surveillance team watching him. We thought about intercepting him in public um, and discounted that pretty quickly because we knew he'd he'd shoot at us. Um, so that was too much of a threat to the to the population. We thought about a vehicle intercept. Discounted that for the same reason. Um, and the only option we could come up with was to literally go in there, smash down the door and, and effect an arrest. So <clears throat> unfortunately, the initial plan that I'd put forward, which involved the use of stun grenades and tear gas, was um, was not approved by 
hire police command. Um, they didn't really understand how these things worked and there was too much concern that um, the other occupants of the house may be harmed. So Mullen was living with a, a female who was uh, his accomplice. She was his driver on a number of his armed robberies, just as big a criminal as he was, in my opinion, and the court later found that that was the case. Um, but there, her two little boys were living in the house, and one we had information was an asthmatic. So um, we couldn't pump tear gas in like I wanted to. Um, and stun grenades had never been used in an operation in Queensland. So <clears throat> a lot of senior police are risk-averse. And in hindsight, I think it was a fact that they were risk-averse. They didn't want to have any issue with that. So we were left to execute um, an armed raid on a house without what, without the options that I knew were essential. Added to that, um, we were wearing bullet-resistant vests. There's no such thing as a bulletproof vest. That's, a, that's an invention of the movies. Um, bullet-resistant vests that were quite um, basic. They were really only designed in those days to stop a handgun at close quarters or a shotgun. Any rifle rounds that travel at a higher velocity would just go through these things. Um, and we knew that, and unfortunately, that was proven to be right. Peter Kidd uh, was a, a, a friend of mine and a friend of all of us who um, was a full-timer like me. Pete and his um, Pete was recently married. Um, he'd gone through a tragedy. He and his wife had had a stillborn child, which was heartbreaking. And knowing that we were going into pretty much 99% possibility it was going to be a gunfight, I didn't want Pete involved on the raid as much as he wanted to do it because um, I had that, I suppose, protective thing towards him and I didn't want to put him at risk at all given what he and his wife had been through. Um, as things turn out, one of the operators that I'd nominated as part of my assault team to go in um, had to withdraw. And Pete was the um, was the best shot out of all of us. And he'd, uh, like me, he'd finished the special air service course and was on top of his game. So he insisted that he come with us and, um, and I really had no choice. There was no other operator that was as good as he was. I just want to insert when you say finish the S the SAS course, you weren't mm. you're not saying that you're a SAS operative. No, you're sorry, saying yeah. that it yeah. was a training for the tactical stuff that they assisted with. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah, the SAS were training all of tactical teams around Australia, and and I'd been selected to go to Perth and do a uh, a police counter terrorist instructors course with them, which involved thousands of rounds of of ammunition, smashing into the killing house, smashing and learning how to breach into buildings and and various other things. Um, <clears throat> and that sort of training is invaluable. Pete had completed the same course the year before, and uh, and he was, you know, he was a very, very good operator. In essence, um, you know, I made the decision to include him in the team. Um, and in in a tactical situation, the leader of the team doesn't have the final say. The entire team decides on who goes in first. Yeah. Um, we all sat down, there were four of us, and we sat down and discussed it. Um, why is that? Why is it a collaborative uh, discussion rather than a hierarchical decision based on... Tactical is a different world. Tactical, you need to absolutely have everybody on board with a decision rather than dictate. Okay. You, you do direct in some circumstances, but you know that's the way the special air service operated as well in those days. It was called a Chinese parliament, I guess, where... You all just sat down and had your ideas regardless of rank, and it was an equal conversation. Um, so we decided that uh, we agreed, yeah, that Pete would be number one in through the door. Um, always a very dangerous position to be in. And, um, yeah, so we, uh, we raided the house in the dark. Um, we had, in those days, only very small torches on our weapons and the house was completely dark so those torches are like um like a little thing you may carry in your handbag or in your glove box you know just a, a very small torch it's maybe i don't know 10 centimeters long that you know throws out a reasonable beam of light nothing like a blinding light that um that major that, that mag light torches have now so we thought we could enter covertly. Um, unfortunately, we didn't. We weren't able to enter covertly. Um, 
And given that I wasn't allowed to use tear gas or distraction grenades, I had a another assault team underneath the target's bedroom window. Um, my instructions to them were that if they heard us smashing the door, if we couldn't get in quietly, they were to throw a ladder through the bedroom window to have him believe they were coming in that way. That all went according to plan um, until we started smashing in the door and the offender had turned the hinges around the other way to make the door face outwards, which actually slows down entry. Very, very professional arm robber. Um, and with that, that first hit on the door, my distraction team did what they were instructed and threw the ladder, you know, smashed it through the window. He was out of bed and fired two high-powered rounds at them immediately. So it was on. Um, we, we got into the house within oh, probably five to seven seconds, which is, you know, six seconds slower than normal, um, and approached the bedroom and, and there was a gun battle. Um, Peter was shot um, a total of five times. He was shot the first two times as he walked. We approached the bedroom door and he pushed the door open um, and then he was shot a further three times. Uh, I was, as, as assault team leader, my position was number four. That's, that's a non-negotiable in the tactical world. And uh, I had another tactical team whose job was to go to the rear of the house and, and secure the, the, the kids and make sure they were okay. It's, um, it's impossible to explain unless you're there, but there was a volley of gunshots that came out of that bedroom towards us down a, uh, a hallway. And the assault team leader of number two leapt across that volley of shots and started engaging or shooting the offender. And then both of us um, were at the doorway shooting at him and, uh, and we hit him a number of times and he went down. And, and as the, uh, you know, we went in, secured him, um, someone turned the bedroom light on and his de facto suddenly sat up from under a mattress, uh, the doona of a mattress they had on the floor and I, I put my, my, my foresight or the sight of my submachine gun on her forehead, aimed at her forehead essentially. And um, my first thought was to shoot her because I could hear Peter screaming in pain in the corner and I knew that the bullets would have gone through his vest. I knew it. And, uh, and my, my immediate revenge and lizard brain wanted me to shoot her. And thank God my training and my moral compass took over and I took my finger off the trigger and moved it away and someone came and grabbed her and dragged her out, handcuffed her and, and arrested her. Um, and I went over to Peter and, uh, and as he was, he, he died later that morning in hospital. <clears throat> and as I, I was just with him, I was holding his hand and, and it was just, it was one of the most horrible things I've ever been through. Um, hearing the pain, seeing the agony, hearing the screams, I mean, seeing the agony um, and knowing there's nothing I could do for him. And my other great friend at the time, Steve, um, he'd been shot once and I was standing beside him as the bullet literally pushed him backwards. That's one of the things movies do get right. The bullet literally pushed him about a metre down um, the corridor on the floor and I could hear him um, and it was just just a horrible environment, a horrible thing to go through. Uh, the offender was dead. I've never lost one second sleep over shooting him, um, never. Um, but I lost a lot of years over what I now understand to be um, survivor guilt and post-traumatic stress. And, uh, and you're right, I, I, I think the term disorder is completely erroneous. I think it should be post-traumatic stress injury because as much that injury stayed with me as much as a physical one would have and mm. probably much longer. Um, and that's why I wanted to write so openly in this book about the impact it had on me mm. and, and the fact that, that recovery is possible. And, and I'm, I'm not going to talk today about how that happened. I, I really want people to read that, that chapter that you've read. And, and, and that morning I woke up and went, Jesus Christ, it's all gone away. What the hell? Um, but I, I, I want people to be able to try and understand that, that the absolute impact that this job can have on people is horrible. Thank God not, and most police never fire their weapon in anger. They fire it on the range, but they never fire it in a real situation. Thank God. Um, but I also want to really use the opportunity for any, anybody out there, you know, police, ADF or anybody who's been through a trauma that, that really affects them, 
like this. I really want, I'd love them to know that it's not just them. For a long, long time, I thought I was just a bit nuts. I, I didn't know what PTSD was. Nobody did. I just thought I was just an angry guy. And, uh, and it wasn't until I started realizing the impact that, that it had on me as a person um, that I could start to recover from it. And, and, and if I, you know, and, and I'll probably sound like a cracked record, but, but anybody who listens to this podcast who thinks that it's, they're suffering alone, my message is absolutely not. You know, you are not alone. It's not just you. You're not imagining it. Mm. You know, and there's a lot of ways that you can reach out for help. Um, yeah. So, which is why, you know, the last part of the book I've written about some organizations that are there to help. But, mm. but Flashdance, um, yeah, it's one of those moments that certainly defined my life. And I took a long, long time um, before I could even have this conversation. You know, I'd, I'd try to talk about it with people and I'd just end up crying within, you know, 15 seconds or something. Um, and I'd uh, tell, you know, that story over and over and over and cry every time. The thing that um, struck me about reading the book was although you enjoyed the thrill and the adrenaline of being undercover when and you didn't want to move to CIB, when you did, you really found or well, seemed to find a group of guys that had your back and, and that you loved and that you trusted. I mean, you talk about mm. going in and telling one of your, your colleagues, Dennis, over a beer about some of the stuff that you'd seen as undercover which and and the approaches that you've had with some uh, uh, less desirable suggestions from other police officers. Mm. Um, Denise, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> um, people can I, read the book to find out I, more about Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to tell them everything, do we? Don't want to tell them everything. <laughs> but it, it really was like in the tactical world you'd gone from being, uns- in, in your words, how you felt so unsupported being undercover to being in this team of really tight mates really yeah. within the tactical world and then to yeah. lose... Peter, as you did on on in Flashdance, um, you know, devastating. But then also the support from the other tactical teams around Australia that you'd mm. had, mm. particularly the new set you talk about the New South Wales guys and stuff yep. like that was was lovely. Yep. You also are very honest in regards to how dark that uh, all the the accumulation of everything that you'd seen throughout your career and and how really amazing Kathleen, your wife was Mm. um and then you discuss which i don't want to go too much into detail because it's very vivid description in regards to what you say in the book um which i probably don't think is suitable for a podcast but um i I agree in terms of the the near suicide attempt that you that you had do you have any you obviously we're talking today so you didn't commit suicide but do you (laughs) There were reasons for for not proceeding with that, and you discuss it. But but as a result of the PTSD, you really withdrew from Kathleen, and and yeah. and um, you actually state that didn't that didn't go as well as what you should have handled it as well as what you should have handled that relationship. Yeah, did you ever I, tra- yeah, did you ever track yeah. her down and apologize? Because you subsequently divorced. Yeah, I yeah yeah, I, I, and I regret all of that. I was just in such a dark morass of you know, poof, well, um, a, a horrible place. And um, yeah, I did. I I, I spoke with uh, with Kathleen uh, again, sadly at the mutual at the, at the funeral of a mutual friend of ours. And um, and I won't say too much about that because I've written about that as well. But um, yeah, we we spoke and and I apologised, you know, profusely and, and genuinely about how I treated our marriage and, and how I just left. And and I had, I didn't know why I left. I was just a mess. I just, I wanted to be isolated. I, I didn't want to have anyone else in my life. I um, And what I said, what I know now to be absolute classic, classic symptoms of PTSD, you know, the because need you, to withdraw. In the book, and I want to clarify this, it, it mm. came across as literally you got up one morning, just walked out the door and said goodbye. Was that yeah. actually how it happened? Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Wow, yeah. okay. Um, and, and I slept in my office for a couple of nights. I had no plan. I, I hadn't planned and I hadn't, um, thought it through, identified another residence or anything. I, I just, I just, just left, 
and and I and I look back at that time and go, I don't even know what I was thinking. Yeah, I was just so um, broken, just so emotionally numb. <clears throat> um, yeah. That uh, I, I just made decisions that I, I, as I say, I look back on now and go, wow, you know. Um, and I could never really go back to who I used to be, and I think that was part of it. I knew that I'd changed, and and I grieved for that that person, that happy person I used to be. Well, you actually state in the book that the old Keith, after that, the night where you nearly committed suicide, that you knew mm. that the old Keith was gone forever. Mm. Yeah. Um, which is telling, I think, in terms of that journey that you needed to go on. Do you think you've got some of that old Keith back now? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. I, I, th- I think, yeah, I do. Uh, you know, certainly the... Um, um, <laughs> The, the gregarious, the you know, the engaging guy that uh, that he used to be. There's there's yeah. a fair bit of that back, um, but I'm you know it's tempered by it's tempered by mm, sometimes those dark days, um, and and I guess a, a sense of weary cynicism and um, I wouldn't say a distrust of people that I meet, but I'm more on guard. With people that I meet, when I before all this happened, I'd you know I'd, I'd welcome anyone into my life, um, and it just takes a little bit, just takes a little bit to get through that barrier um, now. Um, That's interesting because I don't find I don't think that you're, I, I don't, you don't strike me as someone as being very guarded, well, to some degree. Maybe it's yeah. just me. Yeah, maybe well, I just I guess, have that effect on people, Keith. Well, maybe you do. <laughs> um, but see, it's interesting. You know, you do as a human being, you get a you get an immediate connection with some people, and mm. and you know, when we first chatted on on the podcast before we met, I just had this thing. I didn't know what it was. So, wow, she makes me comfortable. Yeah. But I but I with other environments, I'll just outwardly, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you. But I'll just watch. I'll watch and assess. Yeah. And the old me wouldn't have done that. The old me would have gone, "Hey, you're a good guy or girl," until you prove otherwise, you know. So, so there's bits of that 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 have lingered, I guess. Um, but I, I feel much more at ease with myself now than I have for a long time. Mm. Um, and the cliche is, you know, you write it down as a catharsis. Well, in this case, absolutely, it's been a brilliant catharsis for me to to confront things like flash dance and actually write about it um, without any heroics or um you know filtering i guess um that's that's been a pretty powerful tool for me to to help with coming to terms with it um you yeah, write it's, it's, it's a good journey there's a there's a section in the book and i'm just going to read this i'm convinced that everybody is capable of extreme violence but i'm equally convinced most people never tap into the dark side or that we're never aware that it lurks somewhere in us my problem was that I not only was aware of it, that I was happy to announce its presence. I wasn't just changing a little. I was on the verge of jumping into the abyss. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that through that journey, that's obviously that anger has dissipated or do you still have that bubbling under the surface now? No. I, when, when, when I, I wrote it, sorry, <laughs> when I wrote that, I, I meant or I was referring to the time after Peter was, was murdered. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting thing. My my um my counsellor has helped me understand that I actually witnessed a friend's murder, which explains why I was so screwed up. Yeah. And because I'd refer to Well, I don't to think his- screwed up. I think screwed up is the wrong terminology. You were mm. suffering with an, a mental injury rather than yeah. Scre- yeah. yeah. It's probably just my way of or my I know. subconscious. I know, of, you know, I know, I know, but I don't I don't want you to um undervalue that situation in terms Thank of what you. you went through. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I I slipped right into a darkness. I, I wanted blood. I wanted to shoot as many crooks as I could um, in, in payback, in revenge. Um, you know, I, I adopted a mindset that I would never have any of my team Go through what Peter had gone through. I would never let that happen. And um, and and to explain that a little better, um, we had we'd undertaken literally hundreds of high risk raids before Peter was killed. Mm. Literally hundreds. Mm. Um, 
and quite a number of those uh, the offenders have been armed and i'd always you know given the opportunity for them to surrender i'd made a decision then after after what happened with pete that that was not going to be the case if anybody raised a firearm anywhere near me or my team they were going to god you know i was as i became as cold-blooded as that and that's not who i used to be mm. and, and so and when i write about the abyss that's um that's the the Nietzsche quote I've used at the beginning of the book. Mm. And I often felt like I was standing looking into a dark abyss, just teetering on the edge and wondering what it would be like to take that next step. And that that whole um, darkness of personality and single-minded focus about, you know, I was, I was just going to give me half a chance they were going to God um, or whoever. And, uh, and and that's what I wanted to write very honestly and openly about, that that was um, one of the unintended consequences of going through that gun battle um, was that it changed me as a person and, and I became quite cold and ruthless. Um, and that's when I realised that it's, after something else I've written about, um, it was a wake-up call for me because I thought, Jesus, you're turning into something that you never used to be. Mm. And that's when I realised I had to go out of that tactical world, the tactical world that I loved, my tribe, you know, my mates, the excitement, the um, the satisfaction of taking someone down who'd, you know, terrorised other people. Mm. I had to leave that behind because I knew sooner or later I'd probably step right over that line. You talk very honestly, as we've, we've mentioned, about your PTS injury and your journey to sort of getting back to yourself. It struck me how late it was in your life. I mean, it was really, it was 2015 or something that you realised that it was, that you probably got diagnosed with PTSD, which was the diagnosis. And um, um, Yeah, probably later than that, actually. Um, it's probably two years ago that okay. I was formally diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that was because... I'd been, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd tried to find counsellors and, and I still <laughs> I still chuckle at this because I used to think to myself, well, you haven't got PTSD. That's for people who've been through some really serious stuff. You know, all you've got is some issues with some things you've seen. Um, and when I, when I finally found the right, the right person to speak with who ironically was, was recommended to me by a, um, a special air service Afghanistan veteran who I happened to meet, um, and he identified it. You know, he just said, you need someone's number, don't you? And I said, right, does it show that much? So I spoke to this person, and, uh, and after the first session, you know, she just said, yep, you absolutely have chronic PTSD. Um, and that was, that was empowering because mm. I realised that all of what I thought was, not all of what, a, a fair bit of what I thought may have been an overreaction, and this is how you, you normalise stuff when you're right in that, in that space, um, I just thought, well, maybe I'm exaggerating it to myself. Maybe I, you know, maybe I just have an anger issue. And and when I was formally diagnosed with it, it that was um, that was an opportunity to really just go, okay, let's let's treat this as a a major thing to to contend with. Um, and that again, cliche, but that was the first step to recovery. Um, and I was already in a pretty good space because of what had happened um, to give me that sense of affirmation. And I was already okay, but but I'd lapse. When you, you say know, affirmation, um, you, Keith's referring to a, a part of the book which you won't discuss because you need to read right. the book. But yeah. um, it's a very good yeah. story. Yeah, mm, <laughs> it's a lovely mm, story. Mm. Um, so, but I'd still I'd still lapse every now and then, Fiona. I'd uh, you know I'd say to I'd say to my now wife, so look, I can feel it coming on. I need to go. I, and and we luckily have friends who have a um, a vacation house or a beach house, so I'd be able to go down there for a couple of days and spend time alone, just with my thoughts. Go for a run on the beach, do some karate stuff. What the hell? Or just sit there and have you know a few beers and look at the ocean. Um, I understand now that's very common with people who who have the condition. Um, so I, I could, I'd still have dark days. I'd still have sad days, and, and the difference was that I could, I could actually understand they were coming. I just didn't know what to do about them. Mm. So when I, when I saw the the right person and spent a lot of time speaking with her and 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 identifying with her help what the triggers were and why, 
um, I still don't know what they do, you know. They say, tell me how you're feeling. And suddenly an hour later you go, what do you think? Oh, no, what do you think? <laughs> That'll be, you know, X amount of dollars. What a great job. Um, but I think she it should be more involved than that. <laughs> <laughs> she, um, no, she's been fabulous. So it's really, uh, I'm, I'm in the best place now mentally and emotionally. I've been, God, 30 years, mm. which is, um, is kind of nice, but mm. kind of sad at the same time. You're, yesterday, we were going to do this podcast yesterday and then mm. um, you had some stuff that came up and one of the things that you were heading off to was a board meeting for a PTSD organisation. Tell me mm. about your work in that PTSD space now. Yeah, um, so it's it's called the male hug and um, and whilst it's the male hug, it's also, you know, it, it's, um, it's a foundation that's aimed towards encouraging men to speak to make mm. them better people, which in turn will help their partners, families associates and so on we um we've been going for probably two years um we're we're fairly i wouldn't say you know, we're fairly new in the space um and and we our board is comprised of some magnificent people um who are like-minded um and it's all about you know i i speak at a number of presentations um and in fact i'm doing one next week where i talk about my journey and the fact that had i been able to speak to somebody, a mate, um, all those years ago, I would have recovered a lot sooner. The problem with men is that we, um, we're very insular. We find it very difficult to connect with our emotions. We find it very difficult to tell our friends that we love them. And, and our ethos is to encourage men to speak more. We have a number of events that we do. We, we talk to corporations. We talk about a positive culture. We talk about um, the fact that mental health should not be a stigma, um, and it's just such it, it's it's such a great thing for me to be involved in because um, I, I want to be part of something that creates generational change. And there's still some stigma around mental health, although the conversation is getting better. Um, but that's how that's our approach. Our approach is to get out there and, and really shout that message from the rooftops. Um, we have a, a high-profile AFL player. We played for Hawthorne, I think. Not that I'm a footy guy. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint all those Aussies out there. Um, <laughs> it's very unusual he, in Australia not to be a footy. And when we talk uh, about footy, it's AFL, Australian yeah, football. AFL, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a bit stubborn about not following things that people tell me I should do. Um, <laughs> what do you follow, Keith? <laughs> oh, I'm a martial artist. So, uh, you know, I watch the Wallabies. Yeah, I watch the Wallabies play and, and every Last now and night, then. Last night we beat France. Thank God. Um but, you know, I'm, I'm not a football follower as such. I'm not a rabid sort of, you know, sports follower. I do my own thing. Um, yeah. But, uh, but this, this guy, uh, Johnny Hay, he's incredibly open about his struggles with, um, with mental health, um, drug use, uh, addiction and recovery. And so it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm just so happy to be part of it. I was really honoured to be approached to be a board member of the Male Hug. It's, it's a magnificent organisation and will get bigger. Well, Keith, your there you book, go. How was that for a pitch? It's fantastic. <laughs> your book, um, Gun to the Head, is out on the 20th of July, so in well, no, a couple of weeks, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, how can people get it? Is it on um, Amazon and Booktime? Yeah, um, so it'll be available through uh, through Dimix, QBD, you know, the usual, not the usual, the good bookstores, um, but online, Booktopia. Um, so Booktopia, Amazon. Uh, there will be an audible version as well, and the same guy, uh, the same Australian actor who did my original audible, has done this one also, Joel Jackson, who's a brilliant talent, and has really brought my um, put voice to my story. It's it's fabulous. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I guess to sound, hopefully not sounding too arrogant, but if you actually type in Keith Banks on Google now, you'll you'll see links to my book. Are you googling yourself, of, Keith? No, my daughters do. <laughs> my Maybe I do sometimes. Um, <laughs> and I look at those embarrassing photos and go, oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but I, look, I'd, I'd, uh, I've just signed 500 copies um, that are being put, picked up to go back to Booktopia today. And Booktopia have, I think, for the old limited time, um, author copies available. So if someone would like a, uh, a personally signed copy of that, absolutely jump into Booktopia. Otherwise... Go for a stroll through your bookstores. Are they available for pre-release now? Um, yes, they are. Yep. Okay. Yep. 
so people so, can jump uh, on now and, and jump on pre-order, pre-order yeah. for when it comes yeah. out. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Keith. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for being so brutally honest in this book. And if you are interested in a very honest account of what life was like in the 80s um, and Keith's feelings on that, then please get it gun to the head. Thanks so much, Keith. Always good to chat, Fiona. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 